for September 9th, 2019. It's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 584. The one where they talk about friends by talking about Dawson's Creek. Welcome to Overthinking It, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. The overthinkers are like your smart, funny friends from the internet. And no one told us life was going to be this way uh, 11 years ago when we started this podcast. We, would know, we did not know that the podcast would run longer and have more episodes, more gross tonnage of podcast than the hit sitcom Friends, uh, which premiered in September of 1994, 25 years ago. So we decided to uh, to take a look back at Friends, since everyone is coming out with think pieces and analyses and things. We want to just, just hop on the bandwagon like we do here at Overthinking It and join the media circus around the 25th anniversary of Friends. Uh, and uh, podcasting with you are uh, my friends, Pete Fenzel. Hello, Pete. Hey, Matt. Mark Lee. Hi, Mark. Hi, Matt. I'm happy to report that I've changed hairstyles more times than Rachel has during these 11 years. <laughs> and I'm Matt Rather. And guys, I have a confession to make. Go on. Uh, until this very day, I had never seen a full episode of the television show Friends. Shocking. I know. Amazed. No, honestly, that's wow, legitimately such shocking. Amazed. That is like. Have uh, you actively avoided it? Is that. Has you been, you're, have you been trying you, yeah. not to watch it? You are a functioning member of society, uh, right? Matt? Exactly. No, I, I mean, knew. I knew something, something, something. Ross and Rachel. Is that uh, th- that? Am I in the ballpark? I can't tell whether you're serious or not. No, Matt. No, no. I don't I, know. Whether- no, I'm sorry. No, it's not a bit. I'm just dropping all pretense for a second. I had actually never seen a full episode of Friends, uh, which which was indeed quite a feat because uh, for nine years I dated a woman who really was devoted to Friends and had it <laughs> had it on all the time on reruns or stri- you know streaming or what you know whatever we had like uh, Fiona really really liked Friends and um, and it was on it was like the hit TV show of of my high school years I guess uh, I guess in high school I wasn't that much of a TV watcher in college I you know I didn't have cable or I guess we did, but we were doing other things. I was really mostly watching Dawson's Creek during those years, and uh, after it just never, it just never happened for me in the the couple years, and and in its various incarnations and reruns or or streaming, I've never actually. Uh, I'd never actually seen a full episode of Friends, and now I have, thanks to you. Like uh, like Ross and Rachel in the planetarium, I had my first time uh, today, thanks to you. And we watched uh, we watched two episodes of Friends. We watched season three, episode two, the one where no one's ready, a bottle episode about getting ready to go to a, a fancy banquet. And also we we watched season two, episode fifteen, the one where Ross and Rachel, you know. Uh, which is uh, the the one where uh, those two consummate their relationship for the for the first time. So I knew I was right. Something something Ross and Rachel. Something something. Oh, and I also saw I saw the finale of Friends. I saw part of whatever act it was near the end where Ross is getting a a, a answering machine message and he says. 
did she get off the plane? Did she get off the plane? And for some reason, Jennifer Aniston appears at the door, says she got off the plane, and the, the whole studio audience went wild. I don't know what that's about, but I saw it. I witnessed that. Uh, it's about Nancy Kerrigan getting okay. off the plane. <laughs> now that's, that, that reference is more towards the beginning of Friends than the end of Friends. So, guys, was Friends a part of your life uh, growing up? Pete, start, start with you. Like, did, would, did, did someone tell you life was going to be this way? So I watched some Friends, but I really particularly uh, enjoyed the general must-see TV block to which Friends Friends belonged at the time, which was uh, a real power slot for NBC sitcoms on Thursday nights. And also the general offerings of uh, NBC sitcoms in those years – I'd say Friends ranked fourth for me among the NBC sitcoms of that period. Interesting. And yeah. And so number one, you know, I hate to say it because it's probably it's honest, but it's probably terrible is Frasier. <laughs> I probably watched more Frasier uh, because I considered myself to be sophisticated because I was f- full of nonsense. And uh, although in retrospect, perhaps I did just find my niche that had been amply provided for me. But the show I liked the most was Mad About You, which huh. is kind of a little bit earlier. And then and then Seinfeld. So it would be so in, in sort of order of. What in the NBC t- uh, must see TV kind of block was prioritized for me? It was Frasier. I watched the most. Mad about you. I liked the most. Seinfeld ahead of Friends. So Friends was sort of a thing, and I watched it because everybody watched it. But um, I fell into the camp of Friends watchers who really liked Joey and Chandler and didn't really follow a lot of what else was going on. <laughs> um, Not maybe everyone. It's Pete. I was Fourteen years old. Yep. Not everyone. Not everyone was watching it. Yeah, that's true. You were watching Dawson's Creek. I got to say, the intersection between – because I know that not only did you watch Dawson's Creek, you didn't just mention that idly. You were a straight-up Dawson's Creek enthusiast. Oh, yeah. Right? I, was, I think you I was were a fan. committed – the, the the Venn diagram of committed Dawson's Creek enthusiasts and people who have never watched Friends, it might be the smallest group of people you belong to uh, that is more than just one, I wonder. And I wonder who that other person is and how living in northern India in the mountains has worked out for them. Yeah, absolutely. So, <laughs> like, we've, we've both lived a life of monastic solitude and uh, deep contemplation yeah. of, of our place in, in the world. Mark, what was your uh, what was your friend's journey, friend? Um. I think I've said on this podcast before, I've never been like the biggest TV guy. Uh, I can count the number of TV shows, TV series that I followed religiously, like probably on two hands. Um, But I I watched Friends here and there when it was on TV. I do remember, though, my senior year of college, um, the Friends finale, series finale aired, and it was a big deal. And it was on a Thursday night, and we had our Thursday night regular drinks uh, bar time, and everybody got together and like kind of debriefed on it. It was very much a shared shared cultural moment. I think it's also uh, significant for me as well, too, because um, that was my jumping off point into adulthood. And friends, at least the earlier part of that show was very much about um, I, I would posit that it's about the extended adolescence that occurs after college and your first entry in your early 20s into the adult world and how um, you 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 create a surrogate family with the friends that you associate with uh, as you're uh, kind of finally forming yourself as an adult. So, you know, less so for like kind of the entire ride, but more so for towards the end. But yeah, you know, like, I'm, I'm with the lingo, you know, the, the, the Joey, the 
the, the Chandler and whatnot. And um, and when Friends came out on Netflix, which is one of the main reasons why it's kind of really back in the zeitgeist uh, these days, um, my, my wife was like streaming it constantly and had it on in the background. And so I caught up on bits and pieces of it here and there. Oh, Joey, Joey, is he the one who goes, whoa. <laughs> uh, Matt, you're thinking of Blossom. Oh, that's Joey <laughs> and Blossom. <laughs> or the Lawrence Brothers show. Right? Like Brotherly Love, I believe it was called. Got it. Uh, okay. Sorry, sorry. Didn't mean to didn't mean to to confuse confuse those. No, no. Things. This is the Joey that goes, How you doing? <laughs> right? So there's the whoa, jo- whoa, whoa, whoa. There's the Chewbacca Joey. And then there's the interrogative Joey. Um and then there's Joey Fatone, who's the one who goes bye bye bye. He's like the lower end of the register uh so the joe the joeys of the 90s uh the taxonomy is very important to keep distinct because if you feed the food you would give to one of them to either of the others they both would die so you have to make sure you look at the look at the jackets and the tail feathers before you start feeding them bread got it so uh, i'm i'm interested in this thing that that mark said because i i i don't get the sense and we watched you know the first two episodes we watched episodes from the first three seasons first two or three seasons so if the insofar as the characters aged they they had started the show at maybe like round about 25 right like rachel not rachel monica makes reference to being 27 when she's smooching with tom Selleck, right and uh uh, so that's that's like it's five years out of college ish, assuming that they all you know, assuming that they all kind of followed the normal treadmill of uh, you know of of middle class kids, and so like it it doesn't have what what the uh, what what it doesn't what it lacks for me is a show in the the genre that Mark is talking about the kind of like post college show is a kind of manic concern with identity formation with with one's own like identity and i guess that's that's operationalized in friends through relationships like who am i with is the kind of the proxy question for who am i but just to just to bring it back to dawson's creek for a second right like <laughs> they were all they were all really really concerned about like who they were about like a definition of themselves and like how they were in the world and like whether they were in integrity with their own identities and like uh just just obsessively so and it just doesn't seem to have that it it it's missing that kind of obsessional uh quality that that at least to me should define that that area of life i don't know guys am i just overthinking it yeah. I think you're onto <laughs> no. something. So I'll put a few things on the table here, right? So um, career-wise, for example, Ross is a paleontologist, and that identity is like very strong in him uh, through the entire run of the show. But on the relationship side of things, right, um, the, the his story begins with him coming out of a divorce and therefore moving in with this set of friends. Um, likewise, Rachel was about to get married and then ran away from the altar or like backed out of her own wedding at the very last minute. And that's why she came to join the group of fans. So at that, at least that does those parts map well to your theory, Matt. Uh, Pete, does that resonate with you? Sure. I think what I would add is, is, is the theory that we're running with the idea that the friends are actually in their forties and are being transposed into younger, sexier people, because those are the people who people want to watch. Oh, wow. And, th- and that time is like fundamentally more optimistic. <laughs> they don't want it to be oh, grim and sad. So this, this is a show about midlife that's being done by people in their twenties. 
Is that what you're saying, Pete? I think that's that's my my proposition here. Yeah, that's, that this, that's this so interesting. Is, yeah, cash that out. That's fascinating, and it makes it all <laughs> makes so much more sense when you put it that way. Right. Yeah, because everybody not only does everybody have their characteristics, but they've built up their sense of defensiveness around their characteristics in this so that it's not even like they're not even sensitive about who they are. So, you know, when we watch the episode, the one where they everybody has to get ready. Right. And there's the whole thing with the chair and, and Joey has his favorite chair. And well, he has the chair that he's sorry. Chandler has the chair that he was sitting in and he wants to get back in the chair because when he got up, Joey sat in his chair. And there was another show on NBC at the time that was about a man who always wanted to sit in his chair. And that show was, of course, Frasier. And that character was like 60 years old. Right. So, right. so um, I mean, yes, there's the idea of dibs. Right. But the idea that not that you're so set in your ways that your near term goals are beyond the reproach of humiliation. Like the thing that I want to do now is is so important to me right now that I don't care whether I embarrass myself is a characteristic of people who have come a pretty far distance, either the very, very young, either children with no self-awareness or people who are pretty old and in the sense of like, I just don't care anymore, right? Uh, I, I don't care what people think uh, about me. And and so I, that's that's kind of what I think. I also think the question that you know who you're supposed to end up with and you've had all these other relationships that have gone wrong. And it's sort of like you have all these kind of fantasy relations of un, these unreal people that dance in and out of your life. The Tom Selleck's, the Brad Pitt's, the Tate Donovan's, the running guy whose balls are hanging out of his shorts. Right. Like all these all these people come and go. The Isha Tyler's. And it's it's almost Maybe it's ever since I found out that Friends at least was produced by some of the producers of the show Dream On. I I kind of have thought about it, uh, even though I don't think it's a one to one. It's more kind of like a doorway to interpretation than like a something that would be their intent as the idea that a lot of these other relationships that the friends have with people other than each other are fantasies. If you were to map them onto the kind of writing, the kind of what does this mean about correspondent reality, right? It's like, well, if I were 27, I would be dating like a hot ophthalmologist. I'd be dating the hottest guy I can think of. Well, who's the hottest guy you can think of? Well, he's he's 48, right? Like, and he's oh, got a man. successful career, right? Um, or like he's literally Brad Pitt, right? Um, yeah, I, th- I think the aspect that the idea that their careers and their anxieties and their kind of freneticness is uh, – is not present is is either it's either the transposition of middle age into into post adolescence or it's the translation of kind of leave it to beaver confidence in the family unit into an environment that doesn't feel even a little bit like that. Um, whereas it's debatable whether nuclear families generally feel like that. Obviously, Roseanne would have something to say about that. Another one of the char- the characteristic uh, shows of the era that's made news fairly recently. Right. So. Um, but yeah, but I think it, you could either view it in my mind as a transposed idyllic sitcom about children and parents in which the the friends like alternatively uh, parent each other or are brothers and sisters or or are married couples and they sort of oscillate as to which role they're doing with which person or it's a show about uh midlife yeah that's being transposed into youth so that everybody is sexy and everything is everything seems possible as the uh the quote on the wikipedia page says uh but yeah i don't know i mean mark does that resonate with you at all I like that a lot. Um, something else that's important to throw into the mix here is uh, that housing is secure, right? Right. That you know, this yep. is a uh, uh, it, it's a, a 
the frequent joke that came up over the over the the, the series' run uh, and is addressed point on in the series, right? That they had this fabulous New York City apartment in in the West Village, um, which even then was beyond in the, the reach. West of, Village, the West <laughs> freaking <laughs> Village. Yeah, yep. um, which was which was beyond the reach of young professionals even then uh, in in the late nineties or early aughts uh, before you know the the real estate boom took off post nine eleven in New York. Professionals, she's doing catering jobs. Yeah, I know, right? Um, or, <laughs> an actor for that matter as well too, right? Uh. Um. Uh, but, uh, you know, to, to talk about this generational transposition going on here, right, they had that because, what, someone's grandmother, um, you know, got it rent-controlled, um, and, and it's addressed multiple times through the, through the course of the, of the show, so it's not, like, lampshaded or anything like that, but it speaks to this idea that, like, their existence is, uh, is, is fantastical in a lot of different ways and speaks to uh, something that is really not quite uh, actually of their generation, um, but because you know they're young, sexy people on screen, then we just uh, then we, we we look at that and, and take it as it is. Yeah, I, mean, I guess like it was the it was the pre you know it was the post. I guess they were coming of age in the the post first Bush recession, right? The kind of the the uh, Clinton the early first term economic resurgence. So like there was this sense of kind of optimism. We were sort of years just a few years away from the first dot com boom. You know there was a lot of uh, there you know there was a lot of optimism and possibility. Uh, oh, in the an air. important context for this Giuliani administration, right? The, yeah. uh, I'm putting in huge square quotes, cleaning up New York, right? You know, the mm-hmm. crime goes down and, you know, the, the subway is restored to a sense of normalcy and uh, real estate values start to climb up from there. Now, does doing, I deserve credit for all that things? No, 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 not absolutely. That is absolutely not what I'm saying. But there, yes, there was a resurgence, a, a sort of renaissance of New York City that was uh, rebuilding itself out after the gritty battle days of the 70s and the 80s. Yeah, like, like the, you know, the war, the Warriors New York, the Mad Men New York gave way to Warriors New York, right. which gave way to Friends New York, I would say, which mm-hmm. also gave way yeah. to Sex in the City New York. But that the, the, the latter two are. I would also I would also add that um, concurrent with Friends, and I'm I'm going to advance this as possible headcanon here. Friends and Rent take place at the same time <laughs> in the same universe, <laughs> right. and they take friends, place. At friends, about, yeah, exactly. Sorry, you you were about to say it. I was going to say Friends and and the musical Rent. They yeah. take place about five blocks away from each other, yep. and I would totally believe that they would just merely not be aware of each other's lives at all. <laughs> right? Like that they're uh, that this is the West Village in the mid '90s is Friends, and the East Village in the mid '90s is Rent, uh, and that this sort of uh, there's it's it's uh, not one place, right? It's yeah, it's the different guy, places. The, the developer in Rent is going to knock down the you know whatever the the place they're squatting in Alphabet City to uh, to build. Build fret to build more uh, housing for more friends. You know, like yeah. you, you kind of want it to be like you, we raise your glass, we raise our glass. You bet your ass to La Vie, Boham. No one told me life was gonna be this way. <laughs> you want to? Like I really want to do that mashup. That's a very you know that that is that is fertile territory, as I guess uh, downtown was at the time. 
Should we just do a should we do a one act play that's about Joey and Phoebe attempting to walk a dog around the climactic protest in Rent and like not being able to like uh, they like leave dog droppings and have to go back and scoop them up? I guess that's more of a Seinfeld plot would be like like all of the characters from the 90s NBC sitcoms are dealing with dog poop in the in the uh, environment of Rent without being at all aware of the human suffering that's taking place. Yeah, I want the characters um, from Rent to like go into Central Perk, you know, and just like stage, a, you know, stage an anarchist demonstration with like performance art or something like that and and have uh you know have joey watch it and go whoa Um, wait here's a question for you guys actually i'm asking the worst possible the worst possible people to ask this maybe would be the three of us but did friends ever even talk about hiv like even a little bit, despite taking place in the West Village in the mid nineties. I don't know. I'd have to. Well, yeah, that's that's what I was going to say. Like, where are the gay people if this takes place in the village? You know, right, right, yeah, right. In the aftermath of you know, in the early in the early Clinton years. I mean, you could go well beyond that, right? Where are the people of color? Where are the homosexual? You know, this, that, and the other, right? I mean, yeah. there's like it, that is like very well covered territory about how Friends was decidedly non diverse, and it's like you know, the, the very much a product of its time. Right, you know, not I mean, ahead of its time, but a product of its yeah, time. Yeah, it's true. It's I mean, true, because like, yeah. there, yeah. there were only white people back then, and so it's a product of its time that, like, uh, you know, that, that... Man, Aisha Tyler gets no respect. None at all. <laughs> That's Lana. That's Lana you're talking about there. That's, uh... <laughs> but yeah, but yeah, it's... it's it, Even with Chandler's father's, you know, non... Uh, what is it? Non-cis and kind of am- ref- somewhat ambiguous gender identity and sexual identity is is tackled on the show a little bit. But it's from the standpoint of people from very much the inside kind of peeking out of a peephole and not really living among the people on the outside. Mm. Um, yeah, that- for sure. For sure. Well, man, um, let's let's dive into these. Let's dive into these episodes. The, the first yeah. one that we sort of that we felt like. What is the the frenziest friends that we could watch? And after doing a little research and, and talking to some people in the know and reading some articles on the internet, we decided on this bottle episode from season three where uh, they're they're about to go to uh, a benefit at Ross's museum, and he shows up in dressed in black tie, ready to go, and everyone else is in like shorts and t-shirts. And uh, you know, it's a bottle episode. It happens all in the one apartment. Um, as he tries to convince them all to get uh, to get um, ready, it's interesting in a in a bottle episode because like what are the uh, what are the like the B and C plots, and I guess the B plot is Monica, uh, you know, embarrassing herself in front of an, an old boyfriend by calling him on his answering machine. Um, it's an interesting kind of technologically mediated relationship, and the C plot is the the C plot is the homosocial plot between Chandler and Joey, um, where they they like grind and twerk one another. And, <laughs> yes, you know, the butt stuff subplot. Yeah, exactly <laughs> the butt stuff the butt stuff subplot. Yeah. Yeah, sure. where they go inside one another's clothes as part of their exploration of each other without their underwear on. <laughs> Friends is very sexual. It's a very sexual show. More than um, more than more than I realized, and it's like, yeah, because yeah, I mean, this would have been, you know, I would have been fourteen or something. And though though like uh, though sex is on your mind uh, uh, to the exclusion of almost everything else when you're a fourteen year old boy, like the kind of the the level of like funny, playful entendre and innuendo is. not 
not really available to you because that you know that presumes that you are a uh, that that you have had sex and you are a kind of sexual agent, you know, and can have these sort of uh, entendres and and innuendos. And when you know when you're a 14 year old boy and you haven't had sex, it's it's like uh, boobs, uh, something something boobs. Uh, I feel uncomfortable in my swimsuit area, but the uh, which is about the level of humor, but the. Um, yeah, this this uh, they 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 are uh, they are super a couple, aren't they? Like that's that's really they are you know a hidden a hidden uh, a hidden couple, I guess. You mean Chandler and Joey? Yeah, for sure, right? Yeah, it's like the super bad thing where they're with each other, and then at some point they're going to meet women and move off and be with the women, and they won't be with each other as much anymore, which is a big plot point later on in the show. But yeah, totally, they're totally a pair. For sure. They, they um, are, but they're also playing a different role um, in this Airsats family structure that we've been talking about earlier, right? Which is uh, children to, at least to, certainly to the father of Ross, right? But Ross is the father to everybody in the room who's trying to boss him around to like, like you know, like this car is pulling out of here with it without you in 10 minutes. Well, right? it's, uh, it's like, it's like Wordsworth, Wordsworth said, the Chandler is the father of the man. <laughs> Wait, uh, uh, unpack that, please. It's the child is the father of the man. It's uh, that. Okay, okay, it's okay. that. The idea is that like everything in your personality is sort of latent or formed in childhood. But uh, yeah. Uh, so, so that I mean, that was that. Yeah, and that's right. And that provides a lot of structure to the episode. Is the kind of the people kind of you know the the sitcom set is a really good. Uh, Good sitcoms are good, well-made plays, right? From the 17th century, and that that like 17th or 18th century, and that that um, idea of like uh, that idea of like the doors, you know, the the doors, the the place of the 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 set, the like on stage area, is this area in which con- conflicts are resolved and and things that that are at odds are kind of made one, but then like a door can open and a new thing can happen, and so the job of the hero in this case it's Ross is to sort of bring things in, fix them, send them out another door, right, and then another thing comes in and you fix it, and then you you kind of send it out. Uh, another door and you're kind of managing this you're managing this kind of tension this escalating tension that is generated through a series of entrances and and exits and and uh in that way it's it is it is very kind of theatrical in its in its construction oh yeah for sure and this is also a time equals time episode yeah that takes place like over more or less the half an hour or 22 minutes or whatever uh, that uh, that is set aside for the episode, which I think, honestly, I liked it a lot. And I kind of wish there were more of these. I wish there were more Friends episodes that were time equals time because them acting reacting to each other in real time is pretty great. And it also draws attention in an interesting way to just how short sitcom episodes are without commercials. Yeah. They're just so short. It's crazy. Watching them um, right, compared compared with, with contemporary television. That is like, I, I feel like I've been, I've been like, uh, you know, being a little snide about friends, but they, they are, this cast is great. Like mm-hmm. it's top notch in the way that they do their thing the way they interact with each other, you know, the way that they deliver the comedy, the way that they kind of work the jokes like is, is, is really, really good. And I can see why, you know, I can see why it was so popular. Like who wouldn't want to hang out with this vibe, you know? Um, right. Where like, I guess like there were things at risk or at stake, but there was never there was never like catastrophe uh at stake and there was always like 
kind of warmth and like a place for everyone. There was a sense of there was a sense all, all of Maslow's hierarchy of needs were met, <laughs> right? Like the the uh, at the base level for sort of shelter, you had this. I was really struck by the the rain on the windows of the apartment. Um, that's a high floor apartment, by the way, because the windows are sort of slanted with the roof, aren't they? And the, but the, like the rain as they're getting ready and like, oh, we won't be able to find a cab, uh, because of the rain and, and, but like they're, they're sheltered from the storm, you know? And if you need food, there's a jar of fat right on the table, like the, <laughs> the, the most scarce nutrient in such abundance, uh, there a whole pint glass full of it. If, if you need any other proof that the friends are actually middle-aged, it's that the fact that they kept their chicken fat from the last time that they cooked to reuse it uh, is, is a major plot point in this episode. I mean, o- overthinking, right? uh, overthinking it, uh, stalwart Matt Belinky did that in college, Right and and fill, put the fat in a Snapple rain bottle, called it the bake, bacon fat of Damocles, and hung it over his bed <laughs> at, at night. So like, do, do not remember? Do you not That's remember? That's true. I'm just saying, a 19 year old can do the same thing. Fair enough. Fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I, I did love this episode, all of the entrances and exits. But but one thing I would add is that I. Friends, I don't necessarily think of Friends as an environment where everything is always okay because it constantly jumps in and out like a dolphin from this sort of sea of relatively sincere and intense melodrama where where right where it's like uh, oh no you know this person that i was in love with is gone and they've called me back and i don't know what to do and and i'm making the situation worse by acting on it and it's this kind of mounting series of horrible embarrassments uh, or also the the risk that the relationships are at many 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 times uh, i mean it's not on a mad about you level where they would actually talk about kind of quote unquote you know serious relationship issues uh and it had a the earnestness came from a place that was trying to go for some more verisimilitude but friends isn't it, it has a fair amount of sentimental melodrama in amongst the farcical comedy and the kind of feel good vibes and the and the playfulness and even in this episode where so much is happening so efficiently there still are these big swings where one minute it's like super silly and then the next minute it's this kind of mounting crisis uh, I mean, I, I thought that was really interesting and a mark of, of the kind of craft that goes into it. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, that's that is interesting. It's the the. I'm I'm curious about this this idea of melodrama. Can can you just unpack it with like capsule definitions of the kind of the the of you know farce and melodrama and and you know give us some of the analytical tools we need to to dig into this a little bit. Sure, and um, so. Uh, just off the cuff, a farce is a comedy where things are blown so far out of proportion that, that last week we talked a little bit about stand-up comedy and we talked about the concept of exaggeration for comic effect, right? To to take a truth and to overstate the truth or to state the contrary position in, in for comic effect. And farce does this with the behavior of human beings. It takes the behavior of human beings and it overstates it past the point of credulity so that you can laugh at them right so so a paper boy who's throwing papers on the lawns is all of a sudden pegging them through every window right and and uh or like somebody who might you know stub his toe while walking around the apartment instead steps on his broom and hits himself in the crotch right like the various sorts of uh the mechanical aspects of the body are important and the kind of uh uh kind of um 
uh, semi-automated aspects of human relationships where it's like, well, this person is that person's best friend. So whatever they do, they're going to act like their best friend, whether it's plausible or not. Right. So that's farce. Uh, and then melodrama is uh, theater with the goal of elucidating emotion. Right. Um, of bringing out emotion by reflecting to you situations that are emotionally charged and 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 uh, with kind of a an aesthetic sense to it that provokes sentimental reaction. Um, and this would be distinct from relationship comedy where they're trying to like, or, or drama, right. Uh, where you're, you're identifying with uh, the truth of what's being expressed, right. Or you're involved in the plot and, uh, and there's something about it that you identify with, or there's something about it that is kind of intellectually interesting. It's more like the impression it makes on you is the thing that, that provokes the emotion and yeah, that in I order mean, to do that. It, yeah. Let me put it, let me put it another way that, that drama is there yeah. to kind of challenge your preconceptions and melodrama is there to flatter your prejudices, or at least they achieve their, oh, yeah. they achieve their effects by, by doing that. Right. And it's like melodrama is, a, is a, it doesn't actually necessarily have to be this way, but it's often associated with like black and white characters, you know, like good and evil sort of a kind of a schematic moral design, uh, not a ton of ambiguity and sort of characters who are, who are cardboard cutouts because it's really about you know it's really about kind of slotting into your preconceptions and emotionally transporting you in in a way like bringing about an emotional effect yeah. do you feel like that's fair i think so i think we're coming at it from different directions but i hear what you're saying i would also say that that a lot there are a lot of shows tv shows movies whatever all sorts of stuff that have heavy duty melodramatic effects that are not thought of as cheap or with the char- where the characters aren't thought of as yeah. one dimensional right. but the times when they're being melodramatic those things are happening so like there's a lot of melodramatic episodes of the sopranos right there's lots of scenes in the sopranos that are super melodramatic that are based on your preconceived notions of what mobsters are like and what therapists are like and what you know children and parents are like uh, the characters end up with more depth over the long run but in that particular moment with it and the big I think mellow melodrama is like drama while music is playing. Right. And the music is kind of manipulating you <laughs> and trying to get you to feel in a particular way. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. For, for totally. Totally. And so and so Monica, you know who she is because she's Monica on Friends and you've been watching it at this point for a couple years. And uh, and also because she's a type and she is uh, having a relationship with Tom Selleck, who even independently of his character is a type. Right. Um, and you don't really their their relationship and i think they talk a lot on friends about monica's relationship with uh i mean i'm tom Selleck, right i can yep. i can never really think of them as 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 richard uh but with tom Selleck, with like is it okay or not okay because of their age difference and because of the relationship that they had when she was a kid and he's their parents friend and that whole sort of idea of are we in the parents' realm or are we in the children's realm? But you don't really get into like the mechanics of them hanging out as much. Uh, it's not it's not as big it's not as big a piece of the evaluation of whether their relationship is a good thing or a bad thing. It's more like can we make this work in accordance with our social roles? And that speaks to what you're saying about this melodramatic aspect is that your consideration of what the characters are doing isn't based off their interiority. It's based off of what exists on the surface. Um, you know, it's not like we never really think, you know, is Monica have some sort of daddy issues that she's dating this guy? And they might joke. They'll joke about that, I'm sure. But I don't think you ever really dive really heavy duty into it. Like you might on a show like Dawson's Creek. Like, imagine, is there an episode of Dawson's Creek where Joey dates somebody who's in his late 40s? Not, not uh, uh, Joe. Yeah. Yes. I mean, not Joey. Joey. Oh, she's a Joey. Joey too. Joey. 
That's right. So there's another Joey of the 90s. So we've got Joey Fatone, Joey Tribbiani, Joey Lawrence. Whoa. And, and jo- then and Joey. Joey, Katie. Po- Joey Potter. Oh, there you go. Joey, there you Joey, go. Yeah, exactly. But but yeah, there, uh, uh, Josh Jackson, who plays Pacey, has um, a uh, an affair with a teacher. I think. I mean, affair is probably. So how would you way. how would you compare Pacey's affair with his teacher to Monica's relationship with Tom Selleck in the two episodes of Friends you watch, which both heavily feature Monica's relationship with Tom Selleck? By the way, <laughs> well, the the um, you know the idea I think is that it's. Uh, uh, you know that he's a high school student at the time, so there's this this much greater sense of stakes. You know, there's this like thing that like this is is morally wrong, and and the moral wrongness isn't like a sense of like ickiness of like uh, crossing a generational boundary or like or some sort of abstract idea of like who's too old to date or not. It's actually against the law, you know, and that's like um, that's what uh, uh, distinguishes the two things. I think is that one is uh, you know an illegal sexual assault. So that one's you would say that one falls on the side of drama more than melodrama. Yeah, um, I mean, especially since it's it's like it's viewed through the lens of the teenagers. It's a you right. know it's a very I mean it's a very interesting thing and deals with uh, deals with it in a much more ambiguous way. You know, right. um, yeah, because Pacey is well, it's uh, it's been a while since I watched it, but Pacey is is sort of very self-assured. I mean, he's insecure underneath, but he kind of presents as, as very self-assured and like, you know, in control and like, it's all, you know, it's all like, oh, it's all okay. And it's all like, whatever, you know, it's fine. I'm in charge of this. Like I do what I want. And that's, uh, um, that that's a much more complicated it's a, it's a much more complicated set of issues to take up and cuz like when does adulthood start and when you know how how does the law like affect our moral feelings about things and what are the you know um like wh- wh- how how do you deal with someone who's being taken advantage of but who has a kind of delusion <laughs> you know because they're a young adult that like they're they're uh, that they have some sort of agency or that they do have agency but it's not uh you know it's still not appropriate like what do you what do you do with that? Like that's a, a kind of naughty, naughty series of questions from the point of view of of lived experience. And I think the idea of that that like drama is sort of faithful to the to the nuances of, of lived experience, and um, and that melodrama is uh, is is faithful to the kind of I don't know to to something about to something about types or to to some kind of abstract idea of uh, to some kind of abstract idea of right and wrong. Right. And so I think that Friends, both the the farce and the drama aspects of Friends overstate the um, mannerisms, behaviors, situations in the direction of this their mode of comedy. But the overstatements happen in, in different in sort of different vectors. So and the characters are very well constructed to do this sort of thing, to sort of have a center and then kind of go off and, and kind of push on these various uh, these various boundaries. And so it's interesting. So one character can be pushing in this direction and then another character kind of comes in and cross cuts. And all of a sudden, the tone of the episode changes dramatically and then kind of switch back. And I thought it was really fun. I thought it was it was a really, really fun in that respect. Although, of course, the most interesting character in everything is Phoebe. I mean, that's the one truth of friends, right, is uh, well, 
I've been talking too much. Mark, did you hear anything before we move on to more kind of macro discussions of friends about this particular episode? Was there anything else you wanted to add to to what we're talking about? Yeah, uh, we should talk about Phoebe more later. Uh, yeah. But um, one thing I wanted to, to talk about since this episode is a bottle episode, right? And you really spend a lot of time in that apartment um, and you kind of get to observe its environs and its decor and things like that is that's exactly that. I want to talk about the decor for just a second. Um, I, I would describe the aesthetic as like 90s pseudo um um what's the word I'm looking for? pseudo counter not counterculture is the right word but like it's like a shabby chic thing going on and there's also a lot of clutter i felt like between the kitchen and like books stacked everywhere and things like that there's like kind of a maximalism going on also the purple wall helps a lot the purple paint and like uh and you also notice like there's like this little uh decorative uh picture frame or something like that on the door to the apartment uh, around the, the people going out um and it's i kind of put it uh, of a piece with the 90s clothing aesthetic as well too where um uh, casual clothes are extremely baggy did you guys note that? Especially like, you know, Chandler and Joey, or there's a lounging about like their sh- shorts are enormous, right? They're just, they, they, they have, they, they contain multitudes, um, as, as, <laughs> as, as it's evinced by Joey putting them on, um, uh, all, all, all together. Um, and I, I think where we come from there and, uh, have we lost something Matt and Pete, have we lost something in our trend to the sleek and the minimalist and that like Ikea, Airbnb, Instagram, uh, Swedish apartment aesthetic and our like trim jeans that have taken the place of the bagginess. It's lost, funny because I, the op- the <laughs> I had the opposite reaction, which yeah. was when Rachel came out and I think they're related, right? When Rachel came out dressed in a Nick sweatshirt and the pajama pants mm-hmm. and that she was going to wear that to a fancy gala, I was like, yeah, that's something that somebody her age today who is like super duper high fashion might totally do. <laughs> right? Like just to make a statement is that even the the Nick sweatshirt and the, and the pajama pants took on a different context because they were being worn by Jennifer Aniston and also because uh, thinking about kind of what fashion is now versus what fashion was then and uh, the kind of norm core influence that came in from a few years ago. But um, I guess so. Yeah, I guess what we're you're, you're talking about also is this idea that um, uh, a lot of the interesting stuff that happens in fashion and Matt, you can I'm sure know more about this than I do, but uh, happens, I think, because of uh the restrictions breeding creativity, in particular in terms of popular fashion as opposed to couture, right, where if you don't have the money to have whatever is the super fanciest, most designed, most awesome thing that's around, uh, then you have what's available. And so fashion gets built from what's available. And I guess one of the things that you're mentioning here is is the idea that design as a concept is something that now – um, at least super, at least moderately fancy people think is accessible to everybody, whereas before it really wasn't. Um, I don't know. I watched the really excellent uh, movie today called Britney Runs a Marathon, which I highly recommend. It made me cry nonstop. And maybe we can do something on that at some point. And there's a, there's an art student guy. Wait, it made you cry nonstop. Was it, was it melodramatic? 
<laughs> it was extremely melodramatic at times, for sure. Although maybe more my definition than your definition, because <laughs> it was definitely uh, it was maudlin at times, but it was also uh, very identifiable. But there was like a guy who who tried to sell a poncho with birds on it as like an art object. And it was like, you know, that kind of idea that you would, you know, design within reach <laughs> seems to not really be. At the time, I remember it more being an issue of like, wow, men are wearing medium length turtlenecks, uh-huh. <laughs> like as opposed to big turtlenecks or no turtlenecks at all. There's mock turtlenecks now. Right. We, we still hadn't entirely recovered from Don Johnson and the ways that he shattered our preconceptions about T-shirts with blazers. I mean, no, Matt, what do you think about Friends fashion and the uh, the artifacts of, of olden times that we see in these episodes? I mean, it was definitely I it was definitely like I, I've seen the BuzzFeed articles that, you know, like only nineties kids will appreciate this like uh maxi dress with a choker or something like that. And I was like, Oh, Phoebe, you're reminding me of, you know, my uh reminding me of my youth. Oh, let's uh, let's put some hummus on it. Um the yeah, it's it's uh I I guess like the the big sweatshirt and you know flannel pajamas combo is probably probably not i guess i guess these days these days things you know everybody everybody can get can get everything i mean you know if your grandparents wanted to have bondage sex they would go to the <laughs> sorry it's a little callback to stuart stuart lee last week um yeah, I don't know. I mean, a, a lot of it is uh, a lot of it is like tech, technology. Uh, a lot of a lot of the era we live in, you know, fashion wise, I guess, is post fast fast fashion. I don't know a ton about it because I actually don't work in in like apparel retail <laughs> anymore. I work for a different technology company, so uh, um, you know, it's not that uh, uh, it's not as interesting as uh, it, it, I'm not I'm not as interesting as I used to be. I guess uh, as as I was when I was. <laughs> when i was in my 20s and and uh the future was like really a question mark and everything was mm. um but yeah that that the sort of shabby chic kind of i just googled pictures of the the friend's apartment and like looked at it and like the kind of the the checkerboard patterns on on certain things and you can you can look at it you can tell that a, that a set designer did it if you look at a still photo of it and examine it carefully because there's uh enough things that rhyme like there's a checkerboard throw over the chair in uh monica in Rachel's apartment uh, that rhymes with the checker, the checker pattern on the pillows, on the sofa, um, you know, and on and on and on and on. A lot of, a lot of little details like that. The colors tend to be um, pretty, pretty consonant throughout the thing. It's, uh, you know, it's a, it's a, uh, well, well put together, and and it is like it does have this thing, you know, that that I don't have anymore. Where my, you know, my whole life is about like, can I have less stuff? Like, can I throw this away? Can I not like pile? Like, can we b- get rid of this pile of papers or books or magazines or you know whatever? Can it be digitized? Can it just be thrown away? Can it be archived somewhere? Like, can it get? Can it get? And I'm about to launch into the George Carlin routine: a place for your stuff. But like, I want I want less crap you know and that like that was not the case that was not the case like in my first apartments because like I, I would get something i would get something at a thrift store or whatever and i would like put it in because i wanted more stuff and i felt like you know i needed stuff to be adult and like uh, you know there were i lived near an ikea to my to my great detriment for years for years and years and years ate a lot of dollar hot dogs ate a lot of dollar uh cones of soft serve and bought a lot of like cheap soft goods for um 
you know, uh, uh, for the apartment. Like a lot of chenille throws, a lot of, you know, pillows with different color, uh, covers, a lot of lamps and stuff like that. And it, it does kind of belong to that time to kind of have your stuff be a hodgepodge. Um, oh, but really know. important about the aesthetic, there's no, it's decidedly not Ikea. I'm looking to get another one of these stills here, and there's a lot of antique furniture and antique uh, uh, furnishings going on here, right? There's um, the sort of the vintage French um, poster that's prominently displayed behind the television, and there's these just decidedly antique tables with a lot of, like, ornate woodwork going on. Um, that is is is... I guess it was in then, but it's certainly not as in now. Well, one of the things that's really changed the world since this episode was just the rise of global supply chains, especially involving the Pacific, where you can actually buy cheaper things now than you could then right and and uh like just the idea that they get this giant their giant tv i guess that's the that's the um that's the the other other episode episode. yeah that's the season (laughs) the season two episode which is notable because ross and rachel do it uh in a planetarium on a like on a bearskin rug which is you know it says you know ross got game you know bearskin and it's probably an actual literal bear uh, skin rug because it's in a natural history museum, and they, you know, they wake up with a, a voyeuristic Catholic school group, uh, you know, peeping at them in a in an exhibition about you know homo homo erectus. Am I right? Am I right, guys? Yeah. I mean, um, the, the, how you doing? <laughs> the TV cabinet in Friends is almost a character and is involved in some of the best episodes. Uh, and I'm trying to think whether it represents the intrusion of IKEA into the Friends environment, uh, or or whether I mean I I don't think because I think it's like a no. You know what? It's because Joey has to build it. That's right. He makes it from like wood. It doesn't even get constructed oh, from particles. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So the idea that it was even that it would even be like the option to like, well, I need a really nice uh, entertainment set and I can't afford one. I have casual casual woodworking skills that I learned in high school, uh, and so I'm going to go and build the TV cabinet. is uh, is a different sort of proposition. I mean, entirely. this is in in this in the episode under consideration. Oh, I I guess actually like waking up in the diorama, sort of doing it. You know, waking up in the the. Uh, natural history museum thing uh, behind sort of behind glass as it were sort of turns their liaison into a tv show and you know Mm -hmm. people people are watching it and like it's it's for comic effect so it's like inappropriate people watching it but they are stand-ins for us kind of like gawking at you know at these these two people going at it um in our uh uh you know for our our entertainment but this starts i mean the b plot is the is the uh the uh two recliner chairs so like joy comes into some money and they get lazy boy chairs and they like uh they recline together like twinsies um in in their apartment joey and chandler and they right. binge watch tv before it's been watching as a thing um yeah. speaking of the meta aspect of like you know this the, being a show about watching uh, other people on television right what do they watch they watch the honeymooners they watch xanadu which hey by the way would love to do a podcast episode about xanadu um and what's the last thing that that's on that they watch well there's some sports mixed in there between as well but there's something else as well yeah and that's uh like and they're they're trying not to uh and i guess the c plot is is um is courtney cox and tom Selleck, right yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, what, depending on what you say is the B plot, what you say is the C plot for just, sure. Just by by screen time, 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Is that uh and that's the first time that he gets introduced as a character on the show, I think. Oh, is it right? I think I think it's I think it's his first one. Um I, I mean the the one where Ryan, Ross and Rachel you know right uh, yeah um, that's the one, that is the one where they yeah. where they you know um, right and so I yeah I mean it is it is sort of interesting and like I actually I thought you know when they came home from their first date and they were about to smooch like I thought it was like it was very sweet you know they were very winning and kind of I I, I don't know I thought it was nice uh, it it. It felt it felt good. It felt good to watch, and I can I can see why why some people might like that sort of thing, you know, um, the the uh, romantic tanglements of attractive young white people it make for good television, I suppose. But the the they were like you know they were they were kind of vulnerable and they were awkward and and it was sweet and like the thing about like laughing was you know they and they weren't it wasn't like lowest common denominator you know if if someone had laughed at someone while while uh, uh, grabbing their butt on Dawson's Creek, that would have been like a six-episode arc about you know how, <laughs> <laughs> how hurt the person was about that, and like how they had to like really like deeply in like psychoanalytic depth wade through the feelings in order to like uh, have enough trust to have you touch my butt again. But uh, you know, but but this like they had they had enough humor and enough awkwardness. They had enough like self assuredness and enough insecurity that like something about it. You know, I don't know something about it rang true and 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 also had this um, had this sort of sense of like you know the kind of infinite possibility of youth or like the excitement of like first or you know consequential relationships when you're young and and that like oh yeah this is it you know this kind of vibe the other thing that i remember being vital about that episode at the time was i believe it was really pushing the, the it was felt as a boundary pushing in terms of the sexual content of yeah. it i'm speaking particularly of the premature ejaculation joke <laughs> right where she rolls over the juice box and uh, and Rachel's like, oh, it's okay, you know, kind of thing. And Ross is like, no, 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 no. That was not um, what you think it was. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty it's pretty intense, right? It's it's pretty intense to talk about. I mean, it is very yeah, it tough. Is, there, I think there's a lot of stuff. There's a lot of like body function humor in in this which is like you know comedy is about the 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 revolt of the body against the mind that's like it's it, comedy is about being embodied and having your body rebel against your your higher instincts you know sorry pete i interrupted you no it's okay so here's my question one of the things that came to mind watching this was that it does seem relative to back in the day so back when we last watched it uh we, when we lost friends you know when it was on tv or when we avoided friends for whatever reason to go do other things with our time when it was live on TV. The, the idea that friends is a show in which people's relationship with their friends, right. Is taking the place of their relationship with a family because they're getting married later. And because they're, they're also in these kind of, uh, birth controlled sexual, uh, kind of um experimentation it's not even it's not even free love right it's just sort of like mixing and matching and trying to figure everything out there's there's no there's neither external nor urgent biological uh, mandate that's forcing any of these people to get together with anybody, which is one of the things that we take for granted now, I think, in terms of dating life, uh, that like you're not going to get forced to settle down with the first person that you sleep with. Um, 
uh, at least not in the parts of the United States or, you know, I won't say the develop, developed world because it's true in a lot of parts of the developing world, too. Um, but but that uh, that that it feels now that the distance between friends and what came before friends has faded like, I don't seem really cognizant anymore, and I kind of wonder if the culture in general isn't really cognizant anymore of how much things had to change to get to the point that Friends was on television. And what it makes, because because when I think about being in that situation or being, uh, you know, to looking at shows like Friends or like Jonathan Silverman's The Single Guy or whatever, uh, and, and seeing those on television relative to what had come before, I also kind of thought at the time... That there were, you know, there was the boomers, there was like the 60s generation, and then there was everything that came before it. And everything that came before it was kind of uniformly conservative in my mind. And the way that my parents told me the stories of how they had grown up, you know, how strict their parents had been and, and how regimented their lives had been and, and uh, how what an, what an active and powerful role religion had in their lives – and and how, you know, the, even the ways of thinking to get to the idea that you could watch a show like Friends of Television, that's like a big change from where you are in the 60s yeah. as a child. Um, and so what that makes me wonder is, A, in the popular conception of kind of the boomers and the Gen Xers, are people kind of forgetting is the sort of is the no, is the sort of a change that happened between the boomers and their parents being kind of cleared from the cache so that nobody remembers it anymore and b do you guys also kind of feel like i do that the that the the primacy of the change that the boomers represent uh is somewhat called into question by or at least that it had a primacy right that it was a big social change the 60s in the mid-20th century was a massive massive social change and now in retrospect you know 30 25 years later seeing how time and distance compresses everything that came before recent memory, right? Like, was it really as big of a change as we thought? Um, right. Cause, cause now friends is seen as just utterly conservative. And at the time it wasn't, uh, right. It wasn't necessarily, it wasn't, it wasn't Roseanne, right. It wasn't thoroughly boundary boundary, but it wasn't rent. Right. But it wasn't like squeaky clean. You know, it was a relatively later night TV show that showed relationships that were maybe like a couple of years ahead of what was comfortable, like a couple of years behind what was comfortable, but you know, not the cutting edge, but an edge. Right. Uh, part of the knife, I suppose. The back part of the knife that slides through the cucumber last. So, I don't know. Just, does any, I just, I just sort of said a lot, and I kind of am yearning for some sort of mirroring back to me from you guys of of what aspect of this resonates with you. But just the idea that the friends that that like when we were when Friends was on TV, people would talk about uh, Andy Griffith and Mayberry the way that people now talk about friends yeah that you know and and that to me is really interesting uh not just in terms of the idea of like young people and old people and things change but also in the idea of like what else is sort of shifting in the historical narrative that we're not noticing uh and how does friends relate to all of this that's you know that's interesting i i, I listened to a podcast recently um where they tried to find a name for this phenomenon of like, well, like at the time of Friends, 25 years ago, this is, it's kind of back to the futurizing, right? Like that right. we are as far from, I think we're as far from the future and back to the future as they were from the past and the, you know, or we pass the future and back to the future. And it's like, we are as far from back to the future as back to the future um, was from the 50s. So let me, uh, let me do... Um, 
uh, let me do uh, September 22nd, 1969, right? And see... uh, Which is twice as far back as the premiere of Friends. Right, exactly. So Us to Friends is... so uh, uh, Willie Mays of the San Francisco – it was a Monday. Willie Mays of the San Francisco Giants became the first Major League Baseball player since Babe Ruth to hit 600 career home runs. Um, it was shortly after Woodstock. I mean that being you know, uh, another notable anniversary that passed recently. Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid opened the following days. Uh, the, the the television drama, TV medical drama, Marcus Welby, MD, premiered on the ABC television <laughs> network. Which is, which oh, funny, oh, ER okay. promoted. Yeah, sorry. Here, here's, some, yeah. here's something interesting, right? In 1969, 25 years before Friends, America's yeah. in the Vietnam War. And in 2019, 25 years after Friends, America is embroiled in, well, so many different wars in the Middle East, right? Um, so, like, this is, like, a, a very much a product of peacetime. I'm not quite sure what that says about it, but like um, it, it is sandwiched between areas of conflict and war. I mean, which well, I, yeah. sort of, I guess. I mean, I, I I think it might be overstating it to call it an era that was that was conflict free, right? Like, I, I think if you sort of oh sure, okay, sure, the Bosnia is so okay, going fine, fine, but what, fine. I take that back. <laughs> uh, no, but like uh, I, I feel like America has it hasn't been part of its self conception, but there was this you know kind of perpetual war for perpetual peace that that has happened since Vietnam, and it's not a it's not something that we talk about a lot but it it is more the norm than not um to be to have like active conflicts going on you know that we're involved in all over the world even if they're kind of even if they're kind of covert but yeah i mean the the i don't know the the um i think i think pete what you're pointing to is something that like that makes it strong, right? Like that makes the show strong. That makes that is a, a very strong kind of writerly move in the show. It is hard to throw a dart at the zeitgeist and hit a bullseye, you know. And it it it's something that that it accomplishes. And even that like that metaphor of like it's not the leading edge of the knife, you know. It's kind of the middle of the knife, you know. It's right, kind of right. sliding through the cucumber, you know. <laughs> and like it's it's smoothness is what makes it effective, uh, you know. As a, as the knife kind of slices up culture, I guess. But like the. Um, the the idea that like it just it just rang so perfectly true for for the time and kind of for you know for what it was it was risque enough for a period of economic expansion uh, right like it was and we were you know to, to, uh, 1994 to to uh, the five years to 1999 is the the difference between Courtney Love and Christina Aguilera, you know, and that like is, is the difference between like baggy grunge clothes and uh, you know low cut jeans or something like that, right? And that that's like. Um, and it kind of it kind of came in and and rode that wave without necessarily like either crashing down underneath it or you know kind of chasing behind it playing playing catch up and that's uh, there's something there's something to be said for that there's something to be said for something that just kind of expresses the zeitgeist kind of perfectly. Another is the '90s Zeitgeist show, which uh, now I remember is the third thing in the binge watching session is Beavis and Butthead. That's right. They watch really, uh, really interesting, right? 
Um, and and that like uh, you know, if we're trying to compare the two of them, right? Well, there's the obvious thing going on kind of at the surface, right? Which is that um, yes, although television makes you stupid, Friends won't make you stupid in the way that Beavis and Butthead makes you stupid. Um, but I guess kind of to that point, right? Um, Beavis and Butthead represented like a, a, a very narrow aspect of that zeitgeist in terms of adolescence and nihilism, I suppose. Um, yeah, and, exactly. and friends was able. Friends was able to transcend that. Yeah, friends is about possibility. Beavis and Butthead is about nihilism. But it's about a kind of. <laughs> it's a kind of joy. There is a kind of joy in nihilism when the possibility is sort of robbed for from you because you're not really, uh, you're not really an adult yet and can't actually can't actually do anything you know other than play baseball with frogs or something like that. I mean, it is really interesting that friends makes fun of Joey and Chandler by saying that they're stupid like Beavis and Butthead, which, yeah, which locates Beavis and Butthead below Friends, right? Um, which, I, again, Beavis and Butthead is also much farther along in this sort of direction of farce and, de- and you know, degradation. But I would also point out that maybe one of the other through lines that's, that's happened at this point is that, you know, 25 is, is the idea of, like, what is the obligation of a man, uh, in in you know in quote unquote society in his youth, and in 1969 is the question of like well he should he he has an obligation to his country and he should go to war or not right there's this idea that your life is not really your own and, and you need to make a decision as to whether you're going to kind of put it on the line for your country or whether you're going to put it on the line for something else and and this idea that that you know the heroes that kids are being raised with are heroes of, of sort of um, uh, you know. Uh, that have a sort of uh, violent service aspect, these sort of male uh, heroes that have this violent service aspect and belong to the kind of social order. And then in the time of Friends, you're in the po- – what you're really in is the time of the collapse of the Soviet Union, where where everybody who is on the American side of the Cold War takes a great deep big breath of relief because they're, te- they're not scared of being annihilated by nuclear weapons anymore every day, right, which was a reality when we were kids, at least for me. I don't know if it was for you guys. Uh, and it was much more for my parents, but like – you don't have to be scared anymore that the bombs are going to fall. But along with that is this sense that, like, you don't really have any sort of control or role in what's happening in the world. Right. That that, you know, you you're the, this generation is so much smaller and less influential. There's never really any question, as far as I can remember in Friends, that any of them, especially the dudes, are going to do anything significant to help any other human being. Right. Or, or the world in general. Right. There's no like. um there's no episode where Joey gets drafted or anything like that, right? And though the women do more more impressive stuff in certain ways um, in terms of putting together um, their lives and moving them forward, it has a sort of political angle to it. But the men are just totally disinvolved. And now the level of disinvolvement of the friends would not be sort of a novel thing that presents an opportunity. It would be seen as like decadent and and kind of not really forgivable because now we're on the other side where it's like, well – you know, you, you have you have to go out, you have to do something right. It's there's not an external force that's commanding you to do something anymore. You're not in that period of relief where that that sort of thumb has come off of you. And now you get to live your life. Now we're in the point where it's like you should be you should be pushing yourself. Right. And that you're not socially acceptable unless you're doing something. And so you would have to have uh, I mean, of course, I'm thinking like modern sitcoms, um, I mean, even even the Big Bang Theory, the the guys in the Big Bang Theory are making pretty significant contributions to the world, uh, even even though that's not a show that's often seen as particularly woke. 
per se. Um, but like the 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 one of the other things that's notable about Friends is guys. Guess what I'm saying is the balance of men and women is much different than it had been in previous shows. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, even in Seinfeld, there's only one Elaine and there's three dudes. And the balance on Friends is sort of like the Brady Bunch, right? Which is which is also, I mean, I would say that the two shows have certain similarities just in terms of there's so many people in terms of how they're written. But um, but but the fact that you have three women and three men and the three women roughly correspond to the three men and none of them are really married and everybody is doing their own thing uh, is is interesting in this moment. And is and if we're looking as to like what changed between 1969 and 1994 is that that situation became possible mm. where these men and women could more or less all live together, even though they do still live across the hall from each other. Right. Like it's only in the later episodes of Friends that they start cohabitating in a mixed gender environment. It's just the guys treat the girl's apartment like it's their own. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and, yeah, I was but about you to say that. They, they, they literally get food sent there. Right. It's yeah. such a, <laughs> or take the just take the. The, the cushions off the the chair right 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 yeah. and the idea that they sort of go into the women's space just all the time is not something that would have been acceptable in 1969 <laughs> right um i mean i don't know how far away we are at that point from people not even sleeping in the same bed on television um and now they're naked under a bearskin rut in front of a bunch of nuns and mixed race school children yeah. <laughs> right like uh and then you get it to now and it's like all this is seen as as sort of a dereliction of duty both in terms of reflecting the realities of the human condition and also in terms of of reflecting the relationships between individuals and their environments um, which I think is interesting. Yeah. Um, there's definitely a lot of change. There's the ways in which it's comforting are interesting. Um, but yeah, they they definitely have sex and yeah. there's definitely places Recliners, man. Those, those now recliner to sit in a recliner. You have to go to the movie theater. Oh, uh, <laughs> wow! Yeah, exactly. All right. Thanks very much for uh, for forcing me to watch Friends, guys, and thank you very much for listening to us talk about Friends. And uh, thank the friends for for being friends for all all these years. And and uh, you know, it, it may not be your day or week or month or even year, but we at Overthinking it will be there for you next week with another episode. Until then, why don't you visit us on the web at Overthinking? thinkingit.com where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it, it probably, probably doesn't doesn't deserve so matt did you watch party of five I didn't, as it happens. Oh, man. So so yes to Dawson's Creek, no to friends, no to party of five. Uh-huh. Man, this is like the craziest game of, uh, of TV taste battleship I've ever played. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, uh, man, it's like what? Um, MTV's The Grind, hit or miss? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, but I'm going to stop the recording first.